Welcome everyone to the At Covered Calls podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Simpson. For those of you who haven't tuned in before, I'm the Chief Investment Officer of Capital Wealth Planning. And on these podcasts, we love to bring the greatest minds of Wall Street together for conversation, unscripted, usually a little bit fun. And today I'm very, very happy to have a, a new friend of mine join us, Jenny Harrington. Now, Jenny is the CEO and Portfolio Manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. But most of you will recognize her for being famously on CNBC all the time, providing great insight, great advice, and, and someone that I often and almost always agree with when she's talking. So Jenny, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for the exaggerated, nice um, introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I um, Before we get into the investment side of things, most of our viewers are financial advisors, and I know both you and I, a big part of our business... I'll, almost all, I mean, all of my business is, is working with financial advisors. And it's always fun for uh, for us to have conversations about how, how you got into certain things. Now, we know we know your long track record, your long resume in the business, but you and I were chatting recently about how you became part of CNBC. And I thought that was such a great story. If we could kick it off with a watered down version of that, I, I think uh, everyone will enjoy hearing about it. <laughs> Okay, so um, I don't have a TV in my office, and so I actually like little secret. Don't let it outside of your podcast. But I don't, I don't watch CNBC because we don't watch TV in the office. We're just really, really busy. So in 2017, um, well, we'll go back even further than that. Way back when I was at Goldman, I had this great friend, Robin Farzad, who left the actual um, investment side of the business and went into the journalism side of the business. And Robin was always a great friend, always would try to introduce me to a friend here or there and say like, you know, you, you have interesting thoughts. You should be, you should be published more. And, um, and one of his friends, little by little, would give me a line here and, Baron, here and there in Barron's. And then, um, and then in 2017, Barron's was doing a roundtable on income investing. And they called and they said, hey, Jen, would you like to be part of this roundtable? I'm like, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing ever um, and was part of that. And then the next year in 2018, they did a pro Barron's did a profile on me. And this is all from, you know, a friend who I'd interviewed for his, I don't know, 35th out of 36 interviews back in 1998, you know, from him trying to make introductions for me, which was just really generous and nice. Um, Robin, by the way, has gone on to have quite an illustrious career in a, his own NPR show that's amazing. If anyone wants to listen to it, it's called Full, Full Disclosure. Um, so anyway, so then I was profiled in, in uh, Barron's and the phone rang and it was CNBC. And I could not believe that they were calling and thought maybe they wanted me to come on and talk for a minute or two about dividends. And they said, no, actually, you know, we're trying to um, increase the participants and the um, contributors to the halftime report. We'd love to talk to you more. And it kind of blew my mind. I hadn't been on video since my brothers and I made home movies back in the 1980s. And, um, and I was terrified, but you couldn't say no. So I told them like, look, I don't watch CNBC. I have never been on video. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm very scared of this whole thing, but if you still want to talk to me, okay. And, um, they sent a car and, you know, I went in and interviewed and went through my portfolio and they said, we want to camera test you. It was the most scared I've ever been in my, literally the most scared I've ever been. So I found a camera coach and went into New York City for the day and practiced because I was so scared. And then in August of, I think it was early August of 2018, um, went in, camera tested, and then did my first show on the Halftime Report uh, in late August of 2018. 
And it's funny, Kevin, I'm sure if you remember your very first shows, you probably felt the same way where it was moving so fast. You couldn't believe it. That hour went by in, the, in a blink of an eye. And um, I remember just sitting there like turning back and forth and back and forth and, you know, trying to keep up with the conversation. And uh, five years later, it's kind of, you know, it's been a really remarkable run, a true pleasure. The, I would say as enjoyable as it is being on this show, and I do love it, um, I think the people that I've met through it are even the more extraordinary part of it. The friends, you know, meeting you and Kevin and I, had, for those of you who are listening after the last show, we both said, hey, do you have time for lunch? We both did. We went out for lunch. What did we have? We had like an hour or something. We spent like an hour and 45 minutes. It was so wonderful. Um, but the people that we've met through this have been extraordinary. And it's just been a really cool experience. Yeah. Um, I, so. I, I totally echo that. I'm not as uh, a frequent a contributor or a guest as you are. Yeah, you're building up there. <laughs> oh, I, 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 unlike you. I, for, so we're both busy. We both have similar strategies. But I, I keep CNBC on every second of the day. Even if I'm in my car, I'm listening to it. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan. The first time I was on, it was in 2019. It was on Ryan Sullivan's show at the five o'clock hour. And someone that worked with us, Jeff saw it, was scheduled to be on. But Jeff was stuck in a plane. Um, there was a storm in Boston. He was stuck in a plane and said, I can't go on CNBC. You're going to need to you're going to need to go on. And uh, I had to go to a, to a studio. This was before COVID. So you couldn't mm -hmm. do Zoom calls from home. So, you know, get up at two in the morning or so to kind of think about what's happening in the world. But I can't get that much information because everyone's asleep. So I drive in you know, about an hour to get to this green screen studio and I'm standing in there. No clue what I'm doing. I mean, never had any um, real thought process behind it, but except for being a viewer. So I figured, all right, well, it's going to ask me some questions. So I didn't provide notes. I didn't provide the portfolio, just kind of sat down there and and uh, you know, took it as it came. And it was really a lot of fun. I, I was never more nervous about anything in my life. It, I think it was really good. And I, I wasn't prepared to talk about stocks. I didn't even know if I was allowed to. And he kept saying, well, give us the name of the stock. And if I, ultimately, I gave him Boeing, which long before COVID turned out to be a pretty good um, investment pick at the time. But, but I almost got uh, like such a charge out of it after the fact. And like you talked about, I mean, it lasted for five, six minutes, but it seemed like a second. You were on halftime for an hour, which seemed like a minute, and uh, and and it, and it was really cool. But I I also felt like it keeps, and I and I, I won't speak for you, but I guess I want to ask you. I feel like it keeps me even sharper and more up to speed because if someone asks me a question, I, I feel like I should be expected to know it, and I feel like I'm a better portfolio manager now than I was prior to that. You know, that's so funny because that's exactly the way I feel. And it's something that I talk about a lot, like with my clients or with my friends. So I started at Goldman Sachs in the 90s. And the thing that I loved most about being at Goldman was I knew that I was always at the very, very cutting edge of what was going on and that nobody could ask me anything that I didn't know, that I wasn't well-versed in, that I hadn't thought about, that I didn't have, you know, great access to kind of the sharpest, most current information. And then I left Goldman and I went to Newberger Berman and Newberger was a little different, but it still kept me very sharp in a, in a slightly different way. Goldman, I would say, was like whole picture. You knew everything that was going on in the world. Um, Newberger, we had company management teams coming in multiple times a day. And so you like you had just spoken to the CEO of American Express in your office yeah. or Anheuser-Busch in your office. It was really crazy and really cool. And then in 2006, when I went out on my own, 
the thing I was most afraid of was losing, was losing that edge. And so I made a really strong effort in my first years at Gilman Hill to go into the city and to make sure that I was going to conferences, that I was talking to friends, that I was really staying current. But then that kind of slips away. And I and what I love so much about CNBC is it's brought me the best of Goldman, the best of Newberger. But, you know, I'm sorry that your viewers can't see right now. I have no makeup on. I'm wearing a Patagonia top and jeans underneath. So I get to sit looking like a schlub in pure comfort in my office. But I'm but I'm back to what I loved most about Goldman was feeling like I was absolutely on the edge. And CNBC, um, by the access to the people you have there and by knowing that being on that show, <laughs> like you have no idea what's coming your way and you can't bone up and learn it the hour before. You need to stay at the top of your game every single minute and every single second of the day, um, which I love. Like I love being pushed that way. It makes me feel I'm not athletic, which we've clearly established, you know, behind the scenes on the show. And I don't like any sports really. Um, but it makes me feel like probably how a great tennis player feels when they're on the show and you're just volleying things back and forth and you're really sharp and you're returning the serve and you know, you're, I love that feeling. And I'm so grateful, so grateful to the show and to CNBC for bringing that into our lives. So I'm going to try not to ace you on this one. And I promise oh, you after I, after I say this, uh, we'll, 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 we're going to solve the problem. These are all, these have traditionally been video and audio. Having, having gotten that look out of you, we're going to make this one an audio only. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind being thrown under the bus. Yeah, if there's a few you clips can we, can, if we can use maybe for social media, but the conversation's too good to let it go. Um, so this will be 90% uh, audio podcast as opposed to our usual ones. But that's funny. And no one will get to see your face after I just said that, unfortunately. <laughs> Honestly, I'm really high on self-confidence. I don't really care if people see me in my natural state. You I think really you look great. So, I mean, I didn't realize that, um, <laughs> that, that I'm shocking you with this. But we, we, will, um, uh, we, we will accommodate that no problem because this, that's what we do on the show. Now, to get down to business, because as much fun as it is to listen to us talk about our lives, I think most of the financial advisors typically get something really good out of interviewing PMs. And, and what's fun about our strategies is although they're different, they're, 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 there's so much similarity from the standpoint of us looking for great companies, balance sheets, cash flow. And ultimately, the way I was taught the business is that it's, it's easy to invest and make money in the stock market if you stick to just some very basic things. Invest in companies, buy companies that make money and invest in companies that distribute cash flow to shareholders. Yep. And if they can do that, you're going to be in good shape. The names might change in our portfolios, but that philosophy holds true. So when you when you are building Gilman Hill, it, it, tell, tell me, share with us just about your philosophy and, and how that has evolved into where you are today. Yeah. So I had one client call me back at my old firm. Um, at the end of 2001. And he said, look, Jen, I'm 55. I'm getting ready to retire. I know I'm too young to retire. So I need income, but I also need growth because I can't be just in bonds because I'm too young. I need growth and income. What can you do for me? And I converted his kind of blue chippy S&P like portfolio that, you know, S&P back then was yielding about 1.7%. I converted that into a dividend income strategy. And the objective was to have a 5% or better dividend income yield. But because I've always known my end clients, you know, and, and before, Kevin, you said both of us have a lot of investment advisors as clients. About half my business is through investment advisors. About half is direct clients who are self-directed. Who are self 
Um, but even through the investment advisors and family offices that I work with, I know the end client. And so when I'm delivering an income stream to them, and when they've said to me like, hey, Jen, we're going to give you $5 million to manage. And we expect at least 250000 a year of income from that, because otherwise our life doesn't work. I know how incredibly important it is not to screw that up. And so what I've always tried to do is create an almost indelible stream of income. So I can get through a March of 09, a March of 2020. What is it with March? Um, a March of 2020 and make the call and say like, okay, the market is totally dislocated. I don't know what's going on. It is really scary. We could be down more from here, but your income is safe. And so I've found that in a slightly different way than you, but I think in an, I think we're both in an equally consistent way, which I love. I love that we're kind of skinning the cat differently and getting this like really great end result. So I've done that by finding companies, to your point, that can generate and deliver really strong free cash flow. And then in the case of my companies, it's a really high, it's a 5% or better dividend yield hurdle. Um, I don't do the derivative overlay. So I'm looking for just the companies, but the, but the goal is, um, you know, create that cash, send it out to clients, let them know that whether the market's up, down, or sideways or terrible, that what's going on at the business level of that company doesn't impact the cash that they're expected to get. Because the company, when they established the dividend and decided to you know, pay it for the last 30 years or whatever and increase it each year for the last 24 years, when they made those decisions, they've already been through all sorts of crazy environments. They, they're stress testing it and saying, like, even if we get a March of 09, we can still pay this dividend out. Um, so how it's evolved is so interesting because in some ways it's exactly the same as it was when I started it in 01. It's still deliver a 5% or better dividend yield. The way it's evolved is really the way that, um, the way the sector weightings have changed over time. You know, right now we're almost 26% real estate investment trusts. A few years ago, it was less than 15%. Um, even in the last year or so, our energy exposure has actually decreased because the energy stocks have finally run up. So Chevron that was yielding five plus percent for me for a decade, you know, is a lot less than that. So we actually sold Chevron in the beginning of the year. So you see it change by sector allocation, but conceptually and strategically, it's always stayed the same. And so I think, I think the way for the investment advisors who are watching this, for our clients to think of it is to say strategically, it's identical as it's always been. Tactically, it's always shifting. Well, the philosophical foundation is the same and that you're bringing a rules-based process to the table, which I think is so important. And again, that's where I think we run in the same lane. Like we do everything the same way. The names might change, the sectors might change in your, in your case, but you're looking at the same processes every day, regardless of market conditions. And when you sit in the value side of the ledger, where we tend to be more value than growth, right. it's, it's a tough year in 2023 when you see like, the big mega tech companies just blowing things out of the water. I know you run a growth strategy also, but this is more for the dividend side of things. Like we're not able to participate in the market where there's only seven stocks. And even through the end of August, those seven names were representative of 71 and a half percent of the S&P 500's movement. So when this happens, and it happens from time to time, it happened in 09 to your point, I think it happened in 99, where, where value doesn't catch a bid. It's been like a year and a half. And I think it's going to be, the, the, the range bound market that you, you were so um, accurate in talking about last week, I, I think we're in a range bound market for the rest of the year. So that, where does that leave us? Should we just get into bonds? <laughs> okay. So this is my favorite topic of the last two weeks. So I've been joking 
Um, I always thought I'd read David Swenson's Pioneering Portfolio Management. I think I read so many things from it that I thought I'd collectively read it, but I've had a lot of driving lately. And so I'm, let's say I'm re-listening to David Swenson's Pioneering Portfolio Management. And one of the things that he's really pushing on in it, which is so, so, so important to think about now, and I'm trying to think of when this book was right here. I think it was originally published in 2000, right? So this is a 23-year-old book. But one of the things he's talking about is we need to remember when you're investing in endowment or your client's portfolio in bonds, you need to remember that when you're saying right now, oh, hey, I just bought you know one-year paper and I'm getting 6% or 5.5%, that's a nominal rate of return. And what's important to think about is the real rate of return. So if you think you're getting five and a half percent or you've locked your client, let's say you bought 10 year bonds, you've locked your clients in at four and a half, five percent for 10 years. That's nominal. If we're in an inflationary environment where let's say inflation does sustain above three or four percent, that number on a real basis is significantly lower. And the spending power of that bond portfolio is really not what you think it is in an inflationary environment. The beauty of the, of the portfolios that we manage, the dividend focused, is whether you're looking at the S&P dividends, which aren't even really dividend growth focused, dividend growth companies, or like my portfolio, dividend income um, stocks, they all grow their dividends at about 5.7% a year on average. And it's interesting. Um, I've seen studies that show that and I've seen the calculations, but when I've calculated it for my own portfolio, it, it's remarkably consistent. It's like 5.7%. So in an inflationary environment, let's say a client gives you $5 million to manage and they're expecting $250,000 a year with a 5% yield. If, if there's inflation and all you're getting is $250,000 a year, that's really diminishing in, in a bond portfolio. In an equity portfolio, you're getting $250,000 the first year, Theoretically, those dividends should grow next year and outpace inflation. And there should be capital appreciation because they're equities. So in an inflationary environment, even with these higher bond yields, I think it, I think it's really important to kind of consider the after inflation return, return reality. Um, and I think equities build a really favorable picture. I know it's not a candidate for your strategy, but I always bring up McDonald's because no one really thinks about mm -hmm. it. It's kind of a boring stock. It's just a you know fast food chain that we see when we drive around. But the dividend six years ago was $2.42 a share. Fast forward to today and it's over $6 a share. Right. Like, that's the story. That's the story. Yeah. It's so amazing. And you know what? You know, along the same lines, I think it'd be really fascinating for your clients and for my clients both to go back and say, when I first invested, you know, let's say that I don't, I don't know what your numbers are exactly, but let's say they put a million dollars into Devo. Like, you know, what's the yield that they're getting on that initial a million dollars? And it's, it, at least, you know, when I calculate that out and, and it's different, you know, it's different if someone's been with you for three years versus 15 years, but it's quite extraordinary to think about the yield on inception because of exactly what, what you said on McDonald's, all of that's kind of boiling quietly under the surface and it builds up and it's really, really meaningful. I, I, I was, um, Thinking about this year, 2023, the way it's been, it's sort of been very bifurcated. We haven't seen, like I said, a year since 2009 where it's been this big a dispersion in the first half of the year between dividend payers and non-dividend payers. And we all know why. But the, you know, the, the, the cool thing that I always fall back on from a statistical standpoint to get people comfortable about equities really being your, your core equity income uh, allocation is that since the crash of 87, which is kind of our contemporary time period, 50% of the return from the S&P, half 
comes from dividends and distributions mm -hmm. reinvested. So when you look at the prospects for clients of financial advisors over the next 20, 30 years, as their baby boomer clients, you know, enjoy retirement, it, 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 it can never get lost. The importance of that appreciating dividend, that increasing dividend, that compounding annual growth, because not only is it a hedge against inflation, but it really is essentially getting a raise each and every year. So it's tough to look at that as a snapshot. Like here we are in, in a head, approaching October of 2023 and these the aristocrats, just as an example, you know, they're up four percent, four four and a half percent, maybe year to date, mm -hmm. and and that's a um, a strategy that's twenty. It's a passive. It's an index, but twenty five years of dividend growth. You compare that to the S and P five hundred. It's up 16 percent. So I I always think of the 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 longer term picture. I know you do as well. But if, if we're the tortoise versus the hare, you know, I'd always rather be the tortoise. I agree. And I think even even you saying like this year's tough again, you know, I don't remember what the um, or I don't know exactly what the dividend aristocrats were down last year. But I know on average when the S&P was down 18 percent last year, dividend stocks in general were down kind of like four to seven percent. The aristocrats were down six and a half. I just happen to have that. Uh, oh, well, look at you. Um, <laughs> but that's really important. And you know what I do in my client reports at the end of the quarter to the degree that our systems let it? I put in there a page that shows like each year, you know, each year for the past 10 years. And it says, here's where you started. Here's what you added. Here's what you took out, blah, 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 blah. Here's your investment gain. And so you can see what the investment gain was each year for the past 10 years. And I always highlight it. And I write something like always painfully lumpy. Wouldn't it be nicer if it was just, you know, incremental, incremental plus 7% each year or I'll write consistently inconsistent. But I think it's super important to be, to be a good investor, to force yourself not to say, oh, it's so frustrating. You know, dividend stocks are kind of flat to up 4% this year when the market's up 18 because it really does kind of net out and balance out. And, and one other thing, one other thing that I think is important to touch on as we're thinking about this long term and thinking about the consistency is for our clients, we run portfolios, I think, um, I think this is true for both of us, that, that our clients can live with. So you can go through March of 2020, you can go through March of 2009. Sorry, I know I mentioned this before. And as long as they know that income's coming to them, the emotional that it delivers is so extraordinary. And there's a big difference between a, you know, just focusing on the return and on, in any one year and a portfolio that, that someone can actually live with. Because if if it's not a portfolio that brings the comfort that lets them get from Mar from March 1st, 2020 to June 2020, if they can't get from that point A to point B and they cash out at any point in between them, they've undone 10 years of great returns. So, so the comfort that these strategies bring, it's, it's um, not calculable, but we who've worked with our clients for so long know how Im immense it is, immensely valuable. Yeah, everything you just said really hit home because in, in 08 and 09, like my parents panicked. Their portfolios did absolutely fine. Like I think I had a really good year in 08, relatively speaking. And the, the first part of 09, I, I famously remember saying, well, thank goodness that's over. Of course, it went down. The broader markets went down like another 20% in January and February. But when, when the 2020 crash took place, they didn't say a word. I mean, they look at their statement. They know every stock that they own. Maybe there are other things they were worried about with the COVID, but 
the concept of the portfolio and these stocks just having consistent cash on right. cash, if they shut down for six months, they've got enough cash to pay whatever they need to. And, and that was really um, comforting. Now, I will say that this past weekend, my dad asked me why we don't own NVIDIA. So maybe there's a time. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the first time in 25 years I've had a, you know, uh, a question about the strat, you know, his, <laughs> his strategy, his portfolio's investments. That's um, really funny. I wish we all had a big do you think, chunk of NVIDIA. Do you think that's like it's actually time to short NVIDIA? Well, it would have been. Because I mean, it would have been because I think it's down. I mean, yes, you should have. Whenever he said it, it was two weeks ago. So rest assured, it's down a lot since then. Yeah, 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 it, it I think I knew that we didn't need to worry about a recession two years ago or a year and a half ago. And my mom asked me, oh, should I worry about a recession? I'm like, well, if you're thinking about it, you know, if you know the word recession and you're asking me about it, it's digested by this market. Yeah, like, how does my dad even know what NVIDIA is? Right. How does my mom know the word recession? That's yeah. so that 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 that. We're not, it's not a comparative 1999 into 2000, but maybe just a little bit yeah, you know, from the standpoint of people's interest in sort of what, what is the Mark Twain quote, quote? History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Yeah. Well, even the, even think of the meme stocks or the, or the crypto, like this past Thanksgiving, no one asked about it, but two years ago, like what's, what's Bitcoin? I still don't know really that educated a, a response, but it was just funny to, to, to see what, um, what, what things get brought up at what yeah. times, but I, I love where we are. You know, we, we talk about the aristocrats and just picking on them as an example. We could use the Dow or anything else. But even if it's a little bit out of favor this year, it's it's so vastly outperformed the NASDAQ or the S&P last yeah. year. And if you look at it over a five-year period, again, I'm bringing statistics fresh off the press um, of my, my old school um, lithograph machine, 9.2% 9, 9 annualized return for the aristocrats over the past five years, 11% for the S&P 500. So really, really good performance. Just looking at that subset, that passive index, and knowing that there's such a lower standard deviation, such a lower risk profile there that I think for, for every client that's looking for dividends, the, the thesis hasn't changed. The narrative hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. We need good dividends. We need dividend growth. We need total return and appreciation. And, and as good as you're going to see uh, at times the tech stocks do, and I think you should always compliment us with growth. You should even, despite our conversations about yeah. fixed income, have an allocation there. Well, but our strategies should be the cornerstone and, and everything else should be kind of the hub and spoke build around it. Right. And I think on the fixed income, when appropriate, and I would I'll always stand behind this, it is not appropriate for everybody, but it's appropriate in a lot of situations. Um, just getting back for one sec, I know we're past time, but to your conversation about S&P stocks versus aristocrats, I my favorite story which I have no idea if this is true or not, but I don't really <laughs> care because it's such a good story, is apparently Fidelity did a study once of the Magellan Fund. And they went to Peter Lynch and they said, hey, you know, the average client has a negative return on their portfolio, on their you know investment in the Magellan Fund. And Peter Lynch said, like, I know I have extraordinary returns. That's not possible. Please go back, remeasure it. Let me know. But it's not possible. And they came back and they said, actually, the numbers are correct. The problem is the average holding period is 10 months. Um, I know. So let's hope that's a true story. Yeah. <laughs> one, of, one of the investment advisors at Janney that I work with told it to me and I'm like, wow. But whether it's true or not, the point is 100% important and logical, which is 
you know, goes back to if it's a portfolio that you cannot hold for the long term, you are not going to make money on it. So even if those S&P stocks may outperform the aristocrats, if they're too dicey to hold, you know, when they're down 26% on October 12th, 2022, yeah. you know, if, if that's shaking you out, then that portfolio, despite it being a little better, marginally better over the long run, hasn't done you any favors. Like hold the portfolio that you can hold. Revision to the mean and, and, yeah. and volatility. I mean, literally, there were conversations in 1999. I mean, I remember them like they were yesterday, declaring the death of value investing. Benjamin Graham, I didn't know what he was talking about. Warren Buffett's too old to manage money. And, uh, and, and, and here we are 25 years later. And every single thing you're talking about, the uh, pioneering portfolio management from 2000, I always go back to the uh, individual investor by Benjamin Graham and everything mm -hmm. that I do is based on that book. And it's a heck of a lot older than that. But when you when you invest with companies that make money and distribute cash flow to shareholders, that's the true method of wealth creation. And anything you get in your head about, I want to get in this lane because it's faster. I want to get in that lane. It's usually why there's a relative underperformance, which is why I think your story is spot on. Because JP Morgan still publishes very good data about individual investors versus the, the indices, asset allocation, their professional. Anyone working with a financial advisor is typically going to outperform by 200 basis points because you take out the emotion. Right, right, right. I know exactly the chart that JP yeah. Morgan publishes that proves yeah. that. And it, it's so smart. Um, I love Rich Pizzina and Joel Greenblatt over at Gotham. And and they um, they did a podcast that I listened to a couple years ago when when it was kind of like everyone was redeclaring the death of value investing and they reminded everybody that they started I think it was in 1998 and so they started in 1998 and they were down like I don't know 50% the first year or something they were down 20% it was a terrible start and they thought oh my god what have we done and then in those next two years as the market fell apart I think they're up like 90% and 110% and have had an immensely successful business ever since then but it was just a really good reminder of how vicious the swings can be um and how true the the statement that you made earlier mean reversion mean reversion is true and it's quite wicked when it's working against you but if you can just stay on your track you get to enjoy the benefit of compounding and and the outperformance that typically takes place when we see years like what we're, what we're experiencing, N98, N99, N2009, value comes back pretty strong. It's not at the expense of growth always, and sometimes, but not always. So balanced portfolios, asset allocation, and really, I think now is the time for financial advisors to be looking at our style box and saying, you know what, why not take some profit from what we, right. what we got in growth? And I, sorry, my dad missed NVIDIA, but everybody else that owns it. And, and, and look at our, our style box, look at dividends, high dividends, dividend growth, quality companies, and, and take, a, take this opportunity to de-risk, de reallocate, redeploy capital. And pretty soon we're, we're going to be the beneficiaries of a very, very strong rebound because the Fed will cut rates next year at some point. Growth will benefit, but all of our stocks that have done nothing for a year and a half, two years, will, will start to catch a bid. And, uh, and I can't wait for that to happen. I agree. <laughs> Can't be soon enough. Yeah, well, time keeps on tick. <clears throat> Jenny Harrington, thank you so much for joining us today. I know we ran over a little bit, but just tell our viewers, our listeners in this case, how they can learn more about Gilman Hill Asset Management. 
Oh, well, you can go to our website, which is just gilmanhill.com. There's lots of information. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on today. Much like our CNBC uh, early days, today's conversation flew by. Thank you so much. This message does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase securities through CWP Advisory Services. Investments are not guaranteed and involves risk of loss. The views and opinions expressed in this message are those of investment professionals made at the time this content was recorded, are not necessarily the views and opinions of CWP, and may change in time without notification. For additional information about CWP, visit CWP's or the SEC's website for a copy of our ADV Disclosure Brochure and Form CRS.